Hello, this is Elizabeth Mamali from Bristol Doctoral College and you're listening to PGR Cast, Research in Times of Adversity. In this episode, I'm talking to Elsa, a volcanologist from the School of Earth Sciences who very recently became a doctor by successfully defending her thesis in an online viva. We touch on a range of topics today, the merits of volcano-themed disaster movies, battling isolation during lockdown, and demystifying the viva process. I also get to quiz Elsa on a drawing of hers that got a fair bit of attention on social media a while ago, and that depicts her PhD journey. I learned that this was designed in the style of the Mayan Bible, and how it was a cathartic way of reflecting on her four years of postgraduate study. It is December, and seeing as social distancing measures are still into place, we are talking on Zoom. Hello Elsa, welcome and thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me on the podcast. How has your day been so far? It's been good. Um, I'm up here in Edinburgh, um, just gone for a walk, pottering around. Yeah, how about you? Yeah, well, it's 18th of December, so we are at the cusp of the of the Christmas break, and I yep. think it's uh, perfectly acceptable to breathe a sigh of relief that we have totally. reached this point. Totally. Yeah, 20. I've heard people say 2020 has been a long decade. I'm like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> it does feel that. It does feel yeah. like that. Yeah. So, Elsa, tell me, what is your research about? Because the only thing I know is that it's something to do with volcanoes. Yeah, and that's what I always start off with because it's so exciting. Um, and it's amazing that it happens to be true. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm a volcanologist, so someone who studies active volcanoes. And I have focused pretty exclusively on um, volcanoes in Spanish-speaking countries. So um, having trained in Ecuador and Mexico, I've mostly focused my research on Fuego Volcano in southern Guatemala. And that's a combination of many different ways of looking at the volcano, um, its activity and the people who live around it. So you mentioned a lot of interesting locations there. Did you have to do any travel as part of your PhD? Yeah, yeah, a lot of travel. Um, I Because my PhD was just focused on this one volcano, that was by far the one I most frequently went to. So I probably spent six or, yeah, six months of the three and a half years um, uh, being in Guatemala and working and living there. Um, and... Um, until recently, also the, the the bonus of being able to participate in international conferences, which took me across the UK and once to um, to Oregon, which was very glamorous. Wow! How yeah. was how was um, Guatemala? How was life there? Guatemala is um, chaos and color. It's incredibly vivid and full of anecdotes um, that I've kind of brought back to share with my friends uh, that generally end with only in Guatemala. So I've had lots and lots of very fun experiences that are completely mad at the time. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I, I love the country. 
you make my PhD research sound a bit boring because I was in Bristol the entire time, collected my data in Bristol. That was it. It's, I don't know, it's about depth though, isn't it? So I kind of, I mean, it's possible that if I'd spent a few years working exclusively in Bristol, I would have loved it. As it is having spent four years just living in Bristol, I am like devoted to the city. So it's kind of, I feel like the deeper you go, the more you, the more you find to interest you. I'm sorry, I can't help myself and not ask if you have watched the movie Volcano with Tommy Lee Jones. Ooh, um, so I haven't. Does that make me a bad volcanologist? You know, um, it's one of these disaster movie genre yeah. cliches. Yeah. It's the, the absolute cliche, but for some reason, I used to love it as a teenager. So you might want to watch it, but I think as a volcanologist, you might cringe quite quite a lot. <laughs> So, uh, no, I should watch it, especially with such a clear title. I mean, I I hadn't actually watched Dante's Peak until recently, and that is another classic volcano movie, you know, disaster movie, that people say is, among disaster movies, actually one of the best researched because they had the US Geological Survey involved. Um, but I was told that I couldn't I, sh- I couldn't really call myself a volcanologist or get a doctorate in it until I'd watched that. So I watched that pretty sharpish this year. I, perhaps this is something for your Christmas watch list then, mm. to watch Volcano. Yeah, definitely. I got my family to watch um, Werner Herzog's Into the Volcano a couple of years ago. So I don't think much persuasion is needed. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so um, what motivated you to pursue a PhD? I wanted what did I want I wanted a PhD that had a lot of field work in it I think I've always been motivated to spend time outdoors and and to kind of understand the landscape around us and that is something I had a lot of in my undergrad I, I did earth sciences at UCL in London with lots and lots of field work and so I had great fortune to do a number of um, internships um, that I'd saved up, saved up for after the um, undergrad. And I, kind of, I guess I kind of thought, well, if I could get paid to do this, even if it's a menial or, you know, a low amount of pay, um, that would be fantastic. Um, having said that, even though this, is, this has been the, the coolest PhD I could conceive of and I loved it, I think the decision to go into a PhD wasn't, you know, um, it, I was ambivalent, I think, at the time. Um, so, yeah, it's not it's not a fairy tale, I guess. Well, the, the outdoorsy feeling sounds um, sounds really wonderful to me. I mean, in some ways, a lot of my work is computer based, but um, the outdoorsy thing is quite old school. I'm also a real fan <laughs> of like drawing and taking notebooks. And so that was, you know, also what motivated me to do a, a, a PhD with a lot of field work in it yeah I was going to say about the geology as well you can you know we love going outside and then you joke that you can always tell a geologist because they're they've got the muddiest boots on <laughs> <laughs> which is a true cliche <laughs> so I'll take you from the positives and uh, the wonder of the outdoors to the challenges yeah um, 2020 has been a year of adversity. So mm. they're putting my reflective hat on in, in the run up to the new year. Mm. Um, how has the pandemic affected you or your research this past few months? I think first it's, it's been a mixed bag. I think um, 
I was in that stage of it, it hit just as I had um, started writing up my thesis. So in some ways, I was in a very fortunate position of not having, not needing a lot of data collection to finish my PhD. Um, so I was in that zone of having to write. And um, I'd also, I love to write. So I developed a kind of habit over the past couple of years of just consistently writing bits and pieces and I guess I had the habit if not the the words down um but yeah the challenges I think that a lot of people would resonate with is just the sense of isolation uh mm -hmm. the lack of the complete amorphousness of time where at least for the first lockdown we had this kind of sense that oh it would be over by June but not knowing when um and a kind of a sense of like the smashing of the the community in effect um because and that one has grown i think because as earth scientists we are very much like connected via our chat in the common room and our in-person reading groups and our field work and so i think that's a discipline that's really hard to um to to persist with in such a uh, remote um year yeah and both of these things actually resonate quite a lot with me as well so the kind of work bleeding into leisure and the other way around for a very prolonged period of time and the kind of impromptu conversations that you would have at the university that that kind of break up the day and make yeah. the day more more interesting yeah is there anything in particular you did to help you to cope with the um, isolation? I um, I had um, and do have a very good home set up in that I live with another researcher. Um, and um, so we supported each other uh, through that in, in being able to kind of talk about the trials of research and um, cook together. Um, also I suppose be kind to ourselves when we um when we were taking breaks and I did um slow down a lot you know compared to my normal like impatient impetuous I'll do a million things at once kind of thing so uh I guess that that helped in kind of purposefully trying to say I've done two hours of writing today and I'm like well behind but that is all I can do um, and now I'm going to go out for a bike ride and not feel guilty. That was um, very useful. Yeah, so a bit of a structure then and also mm. being perhaps kinder to yourself. Yeah, which is hard to do like for me personally and for researchers as well. And I maybe I'm presenting it like it was successfully done, but it wasn't a lot of the days. I was very harsh on myself. Um, and I also remember having like a, a quarantine list where I was like, today I'm going to, you know, write 500 words and I'm going to do half an hour of exercise and eat well. And there were many days where I just like didn't do half of the things on my ideal list because, um, you know, now like, you know, now more than ever, we're kind of realizing that it's a real struggle to just live and, you know, an ordinary life really. And I, and I think that's really important to acknowledge, actually, that um, 
many of us made attempts to structure our day and perhaps set working goals and, and didn't meet them. And that's fine. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, many of us may have said, oh, I will be kinder to myself, but then kind of beat ourselves up for not doing the things we had planned. And uh, that's just something that I suspect is shared experience for a lot of postgraduate researchers and, yeah. uh, and others um, working at the university as well. Yeah, definitely. And and also, you know, if you if you fail to be kind to yourself um, on Monday, you can always wake up again on Tuesday and, and try it again. It's like the almost like the being kind to yourself um, comes with that sense of like a re uh, re promise to yourself to, you know, try again, not like try to, to work harder, but also try to be nicer. Um, and as long as you're trying, that's that's good you know and it's the tenacity I think more than anything that is the quality that marks out a lot of researchers um as as ones who yeah finish off their their doctorate so um yeah yeah and reflection too so reflecting mm. on uh, on the sort of so what if I didn't meet this particular mm. goal at any given time I find that's quite helpful too and helps to I guess improve how you're looking after yourself in the future yeah yeah exactly um reflection and um and i think having regular contact um i mean kind of you know it's really good to to support yourself in this way but i think although i've lost a bit of the sense of the, the volcanic community just through having kind of finished up my phd when i was writing up in the first one that network was really important even though it was um virtual so having weekly coffees with um, my research group and having weekly meetings with my primary supervisor. Um, both of those were fantastic and kind of those were external things to find that other people were struggling to and my supervisor didn't expect of me what I expected of myself. So um, external validation through those networks was really useful, even if the virtual part is kind of a patch on what it would be like to meet in person. Elsa, mm -hmm. this is a bit of a revelation for our audience that probably <laughs> doesn't know this unless they know yeah. you personally, but uh -huh. you are a doctor now. I am. It's crazy. I got an email <laughs> last week um, saying like, dear Dr. Naismith, and I was like, oh, I should let them know about the title change, uh, <laughs> about the lack of that. And I was like, oh, no, no, I am actually a doctor. So you're a doctor now, you've yeah. passed the big milestone. Mm -hmm. um, and I would like to talk a little bit uh, about the Viva, because of course yeah. it is a big milestone for a research degree. And I'm sure that many of our listeners would like to hear what happens behind closed doors, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So how did your Viva go? And how's the online format in particular? It was a really good Viva. And um, I say that with a lot of gratitude because I know friends that haven't had such a good one. Um, I liked the online format. Um, it wasn't as good of, yeah, I, I mean, I would have preferred obviously to meet in person, um, but I thought it was really well managed and um, I thought my examiners gave me a lot of breaks and I had an, ex uh, an internal chair to kind of just check everything was going fine. And it was quite, yeah, kind of quite well scheduled, I suppose, and structured, despite it also just being a quite a, a meandering discussion. 
but that's a lot of credit to my examiners who I, I think are both very experienced and um, very compassionate. I usually say to PGRs in the, in the last stages of their degree to try and think of the VIVA a little bit less like an exam. Sometimes we say, oh, the VIVA exam mm. and a little more like um, an intellectual conversation with, with other researchers about a piece of work and also taking pleasure in the fact that two people will spend quite a lot of time reading and mm. discussing your work with you. So I was wondering to what extent is that aligned with the experience you had? Yeah, I found that was totally true. And it's one of those um, it's one of those annoying things about academia that you hear that advice. I certainly heard it before the Viva and I thought, well, yeah, that's true for other people, but it's not true for me. I feel scared. Um, you know, it's going to be a grilling. And then I went and it was exactly that. It was an intellectual conversation. These people were really interested in what I had to say and uh, how we could debate certain ideas. And um, it was, you know, probably the one of the best discussions of my research. But um, but yeah, the frustration of, of the PhD process is you get told a huge number of cliches and until they, you've experienced them for yourself, you don't believe them. Um, so yeah, it's tricky. <laughs> is it, I wonder, is it difficult to establish let's say, contact with your, t uh, with your examiners in an online um, format? Um, do you mean kind of build a rapport through the discussion? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that could be very true. Um, I, so I knew my internal one, we just kind of um, not worked together before, but we demonstrated for one of his classes and I knew the external one because I guess volcanology is quite a small discipline. So I had the luck of having some rapport with them already. Um, and I kind of think, I kind of think that's quite important. Um, so I know some people will kind of pick a prestigious um, examiner because they might be like the most prominent in the field. And that can be really useful because they can be so out there with their ideas. But I think kind of over-egging that and, and say this prominent person is like super, um, harsh in the way they quiz you mm. I think it's better to go with someone who kind of appreciates who who remembers what it was like when they were a student and who appreciates someone who is going to give you a good interview but is also kind of seeing you as like a future colleague who's then respectful of you and um, so I would you know if you're trying to trying to strike a balance between someone who's respectful and someone who's yeah got the experience to give you a really good um debate i yes i completely agree and i think it's also really important um and very useful i hope for listeners to see that you had thought this through mm. um and in some cases uh, postgraduate researchers will say oh can I choose my examiners? Do I have a say in that? So yeah. in, in practice, of course, it's the supervisor that will invite the examiners. Um, but very frequently, it's useful to have that conversation on yeah. who you would like the examiner to be and what kind of examiner you're after. Yeah. So it's great to see your thinking process. Totally. You know, actually, I had maybe some something quite unusual in that I knew my examiners turned out to be the people me and my first supervisor had discussed way back in my second year. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought about them being my examiners for years. And maybe that helped in like any opportunity I had to meet them. 
it was, you know, subconsciously like an opportunity to build some rapport and some working friendship. So yeah. that, you know, that was really good. Um, and yeah. Um, that, that's really useful. And I can see it kind of working well, especially because you said your field is quite small. So I mm. assume a smaller community. Um, so it, it's a really good way of going about uh, choosing examiners and yeah. establishing some sort of relationship beforehand. Um, I do want to say just as a, a quick shout out, I remember the week before my um, my Viva, I went on, I think, a BDC run uh, course called uh, Viva Survivor. Yes. Which is, re- is really good. Um, so I think it's Nathan who runs it. And if I'm not wrong, and he is, um, you know, I was still stressing about it, but he had so much experience and um was just really I think he most of all was the one who made me chill out about it and just had really good um approach to it um and you know also was saying like one thing he said was like you have spent tens of thousands of hours on your PhD and you know you can do like 30 more prep for your viva but you're pretty much 99% of the way there already it was like phew so that's a really good course for anyone who's happens to listen and, and wants to finish up. I would recommend it thoroughly. Oh, that's great. And I'm sure Nathan would be very happy with the, with the feedback. But also your, your timing is excellent because um, Nathan just last week delivered to us a set of recorded asynchronous resources on preparing for the Viva. Oh, great. Yes, so um, we are in the process of working this up on uh, our SharePoint site, which has a lot of personal and professional development material for postgraduate researchers. So it's it's a library of resources in terms of how to understand the Viva, how to prepare for it, um, where to reach out uh, when you're preparing for the process, uh, what to do on the day, etc. So just to have something in place all year round, uh, in yeah. addition to the workshop. That's fantastic. Yeah, he's he's um, I think because he does kind of daily um, aphorisms on his blog and also there's resources always available. It's really nice to, to tap in and and to feel well supported. So I'm going to slightly change the topic. Um, and a while ago, you put up a drawing, I believe it was on Twitter. Yeah. that resonated with a lot of other postgraduate researchers and that essentially illustrated your PhD journey with its ups and downs. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about that? So what prompted you to do it? And and perhaps what are some phases that comprised your journey? Mm. Um, so what, or, or rather who prompted me to do it was my friend Bob, um, who's a postdoc here at Bristol and he um yeah just said offhandedly uh because he knows I like making art he said what yeah why didn't you illustrate your PhD and it's in the style of the Popol Vuh which is a um the Mayan bible so it's related to to Guatemala where I studied it and it was uh, I made it in June when I was uh near very near to submission and it was kind of a, a really emotional time because I was getting to the end and kind of thinking, I've done so, I've done so much and it's been really hard um, and also really enjoyable. And there's these four, almost four years of, of life to look back on that has shaped me so much. And yet I don't have 
you know any any way of kind of uh showing that you know i can i can tell people about it but um yeah sooner or later their eyes will glaze glaze over so um um and the the map then was is a really nice kind of compact way i suppose of um just putting down the events that and they all just appeared you know in my mind the ones that the highs and lows that seemed to me really momentous in teaching me things and um, giving me great memories and just um, how, yeah, how far four years in a PhD can take you, how many things it can um, uh, open up. Is there, this might be a difficult question, but is there like a one high and a one low that yeah. you can kind of single out? Whoosh. I mean, I can probably tell you like the first ones that come to mind kind of thing. So, sure. uh, um, uh, so I mean, I think that the first very high high was the first time I visited Guatemala because I remember it was, yeah, just uh, as I said, there's, I, I can't, I, you know, I've never really visited a country like it. And I was demonstrating for a field trip, but kind of the same age as all the, the master students around me. And I was just, so blown away by like the um the kind of the density of volcanoes and and hazards there in that country so summiting um this volcano santa maria um at sunrise and seeing the chain of um volcanoes spread out east all the way to el salvador's santa ana that was yeah that was a really epic high and the low ah. I remember having a real, a real kind of down in, in the start of my second year, maybe like 18 months in when um, I, uh, yeah, it was my second year annual progress monitoring uh, that, you know, some students will be familiar with. I'd, I got the feedback. They were like, yeah, this is like a first year's report. Um, you really have kind of been dancing around the data and you're well behind. And I kind of just remember thinking that was like the first real clear, like, what, what am I doing here? Because I'm clearly not a researcher and um, I have, um, yeah, the, the classic imposter syndrome hit very hard at that moment. I, same as you, I had a kind of similar process in my university, but going mm. through a, a midway exam, let's say, which went quite bad. There was a lot of sort of, critique for the work and the scope of the work so that that would have been one of my lowest moments too but it's interesting yeah. because you learn quite a lot from this kind of lows I think and yeah. they they help you progress perhaps Definitely. more so than the highs sometimes I think so I mean I remember that being you know I remember coming to to my supervisor Matt after that and kind of talking about it with him and he was like I have absolute faith in you and that those words were so incredibly important to hear um you know so supportive and just like I mean I think if yeah if I hadn't had that low I wouldn't have needed to reach out and and hear that validation which is so important so what do you enjoy doing when you aren't in research mode mm. Um, I love a lot of things, uh, which a lot of them, which I are um, very abundant in Bristol. So uh, live music, which, you know, obviously is, is temporarily suspended, but the things that I also love doing, which are 
abundant are exploring the southwest of England and Wales, um, generally by bike. Um, I'm also a bike mechanic, um, so I've been volunteering and uh, coordinating at the Bristol Bike Project for a few years now. And yeah, what else? I mean, I love to practice Spanish whenever I can. Um, so a lot of things keep me busy. <laughs> I recently got an e-bike, so now I know who to ask if I have a problem with it. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> take take it over and I'll, I'll be, yeah, dealing with it. Uh, do you get around Bristol? Um, with yeah, that? yeah, yeah. I only got it in uh, July and it was an amazing lifeline to just have the bike and go on, on slightly longer rides over the weekend. Yeah, it's, it's a great city for biking in and um, it's, yeah, it's it's so, so nice around there. I think what people describe as the runner's high, like I've never had it, I hate running, but that getting into that rhythm of pedaling on the bike is really good for you, really good mentally. Like when you, you know, honestly, when you go down a hill, you still get that spurt of adrenaline. Mm. That's one of my favorite feelings in the world. And um, I'm just like, yeah, this, you know, there's very like, this can't be spoiled or taken away from you. You're just zooming down a hill and you're like, wow, that was, that was quite an exciting day. Um, Elsa, what's next for you now? Um, good question. I am doing a part-time job um, as a data administrator. So that's that's really fun for a charity in Bristol. Um, but I am looking at opportunities in academia. So I'm looking to continue the work um, of, you know, through my PhD as a postdoc. Yeah, in, in looking to become a postdoc, I'm looking more broadly beyond volcanoes and trying to find something which is broadly with natural hazards so it's the ways that the natural environment can um can cause um events like earthquakes and landslides and um, hurricanes things like that to affect people and the ways that they live so how are you finding it is a kind of phase transitioning from postgraduate research study to um, employment, because you're working, of course, already mm. part-time, mm -hmm. and job hunting at the same time. It's quite, it's quite challenging. And, and in my yeah. mind, it was one of my challenging phases as yeah. well, that kind of period. How are you kind of dealing with the uncertainty of it? That's really nice to hear. I mean, not that, you're, that you struggled, but it <laughs> is, um, let's say, uh, a relief, because I think it's is if you've enjoyed your PhD, then it can be really, really hard to let it go. And, you know, I passed through the Viva and I will technically be a doctor when I've some, uh, got my corrections accepted. But there's this period where you're kind of, I guess it feels like, you know, you've been like cycling and pushing your way up a hill for ages and ages. And suddenly you get to the top of the flat and you're still like pushing and pedaling along with all your energy, but like there's nothing in the way anymore you know um and and maybe you were kind of like pedaling up the hill with what felt like the peloton around you and then suddenly you get to the top and it's just you and I think that's been quite hard for me that that kind of feeling that you kind of fade out of of the institution that that you were so um kind of stuck in for for a while and that that decoupling is really hard, I think. 
Yes, and the same goes uh, particularly for people such as yourself and actually myself at the time who want to stay in academia. There's also the additional challenge of, of it being, you know, there's only a handful of universities yeah. in a particular city where you might be based or in the region around. So there's also the decoupling potentially from, from where you live, which can also become even more complicated if you have a family, um, mm. etc. So. I found that was also uh, a really big challenge because it's not just what do I do next, but it's also do I kind of uproot my life and, and move to a new place and, and managing the emotions that come with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's often it's the kind of change of um, do I, um, do, yeah, do I, do I choose academia or do I choose the city? And, um, or I mean, yeah it's really it really cuts the core I think um especially in such a great city as Bristol I mean yeah there's kind of very few places in the UK which are as um as lovely and another truism is that people say you know if you've finished up your PhD and and you want to continue in academia like you're told that it's a very hard thing to get to which is true um but it's also it's much more possible if you're flexible but um, yeah, that flexibility is hard. Um, do you have any tips at all or piece of advice for anyone else who might be in this difficult phase of, of job hunting at the moment? Um, so I, I guess I'm in that phase um, now and really struggling with it. So I will not give any advice for myself, but I can share <laughs> advice from my family around me who said, um, if you've got a choice um, in front of you, if, if you're lucky to, to get a choice, then um, a pros and con list on a piece of paper is very, very good. Um, you know, basic kind of info, uh, you know, old school. Um, and also um, kind of, I guess, working out what, what your values are, like what's kind of important to you. So whether it's security of a short offer or like community or um uh novelty of the research maybe you can kind of highlight what the the kind of uh themes are in what's important to you what you're searching for and then if you've got an opportunity in front of you um kind of see how highly it scores on those different areas i think that's really good advice and it's very practical advice too I'm going to um, put a full stop here. I, I would like to thank you very much for joining me. Um, I wish you a restful break with lots of thank volcano you. movies. Great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a great start to 2021. Thank you so much. It's been really nice to chat. And uh, yeah, I will um, get the movies and the popcorn going. <laughs> That was Dr. Elsa Naismith from the Faculty of Science, sharing her insights on slowing down during the pandemic, building a report with Viva examiners, and managing the challenges of decoupling from PhD life at the end of her postgraduate research degree journey. It's goodbye from me until our next episode. This is Elizabeth Mamali from Bristol Doctoral College, and you are listening to PGRCast, Research in Times of Adversity. Thank you.